podcast is sponsored by Flash Talking by MediaOcean, names that should be familiar to Marketecture listeners. MediaOcean has been the agency system of record for more than 50 years, and brands have been using Flash Talking since the days of, well, Flash. They joined forces two years ago and also folded in the social ad stack from 4C. Now, Flash Talking does ad serving, dynamic creative, and ad verification across all channels, including CTV. So you can say the Flash and Flash Talking were first how fast you could do everything on their platform. Learn more at mediocean.com slash Flash Talking. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is Ari Paparo. I'm here with Eric Franchi and our guest, Stephanie Laser, the Global Head of Publisher Ad Tech Solutions for Amazon AWS. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we talk to Stephanie about her exciting insights, uh, you may have noticed we had our first ad. If our ad server worked properly, you just heard. So I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> Very meta, having an ad tech podcast, have an ad serve. Also, I'll just say in my 20-year career, I think it's the first ad I've ever sold. So Eric, you know, does it get better from here after you sell a couple of ads? It gets better and better. All right. I got to I gotta use that hefty commission check somewhere good. Take, take them out to stakes or something like that. I look forward to it. Well, I'm going to take you out to stakes. I'm picking the advertiser out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can come here. I'm like, work. So, Stephanie, a lot going on um, at Amazon between the ad group, AWS, and the overlap. I guess it would be helpful to start with just, you know, why did you join Amazon? You've had a long career at the New York Post, News Corp, Mail Online, a real publishing-centric career. You know, why did you decide to go to Amazon? It was definitely a hard decision because I always thought of myself, I was, I was very loyal to the publisher side. And I always really, truly believed in helping to support publishers. So I wanted to make sure that the next role that I went to, you know, really, you know, even if it wasn't as a publisher, it was one that really supported publishers. I had been fairly vocal about, you know, where I thought ad tech was going. I had a ton of opinions on, you know, the direction I thought it made sense and and how I could kind of push things that way. And, you know, when they originally, AWS originally reached out to me, I didn't know a lot about AWS. My background is I'm not an engineer, right? Um, I have always been on business side and I knew you could like throw log data in an S3 bucket. That was like my my big thing that I knew about AWS. Uh, but I was always like super vocal about my support of independent ad tech. So during the interview process, we started talking about how a ton of independent ad tech was built on AWS. You know, one of the things that I was always frustrated with when I was on the publisher side was that I felt like publishers didn't have a lot of choice and that they were pushed into certain platforms uh, for business reasons and not necessarily technological reasons. And I felt like independent ad tech could really do more, right? And so I realized if I was going to support publishers, supporting the platforms that they use would be a really good role for me to help with. And so if I was going to push the, the industry in the direction that I really wanted to, you know, I should go somewhere that had a lot of the same outlook and principles as, as I did. And, you know, the idea of, you know, interoperability and flexibility and really most importantly, choice, which are all really backbones of, of AWS and things that we think about all the time and kind of our very customer-centric approach, it was really appealing to me. And I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to take the step and I'm going to move beyond being on the publisher side, maybe AWS is, is a spot that I should do it. 
it's though it's interesting because AWS exists within Amazon, which has an yeah. enormous and growing advertising group. And the advertising group, I don't think, would be considered very open. You know, it's kind of a walled garden strategy. So, give us like the the thousand foot view of how Amazon as a company is approaching this with regard to advertising group AWS, A nine, etc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we look at Amazon ads while they are internal. We look at them as as one of our customers. So they're just like any of the other customers that we have. But because it is an internal customer, you're, you know, there are unique integrations we can have. We can have, you know, unique conversations. We can do better together stories and initiatives that, you know, might not be as easy when kind of, you know, money has to be <laughs> like accounted for across different businesses and things like that. But ultimately, ads in AWS, they roll up into their own CEO. So the businesses are really independent and the business goals are independent. So, you know, it's interesting because the two organizations have different views on ad tech sometimes based on our goals. And and that's really okay, right? Because, you know, in the Amazon approach, it's like, you know, giving our customers choice and it's the most important overall. And then also making sure that we're kind of building the thing that the industry wants us to have. It's important to us and something that I think we can do in the different organizations who look at things slightly differently. Yeah, you have to go pretty high up in the Amazon org before you have any executive who's in charge of both AWS and Amazon. I think you have to go up to Andy Jassy. <laughs> like, I think you're you're literally going up to the top guy before you have somebody that's, that's doing both. But yeah, I, I think I think it's healthy. I think it's very healthy for our business. And I think it's it also gives me a chance to be laser focused on independent ad tech companies on, you know, I said laser focused. Sorry, I have to make fun of that for a <laughs> oh, oh, geez. Oh, my God. Of independent ad tech companies and what their needs are, publishers, what their needs are, and then also what marketers needs are as well. You know, I intimately know publishers because I've worked in, with publishers for 13 years. But, you know, there's also... My boss always has to remind me that, you know, the advertisers are the ones that are paying for it. So maybe you should also keep in mind <laughs> that right. that you need to satisfy all the needs of the advertisers as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that's interesting. So, you know, I, I know AWS through the startup program. So, yeah. you know, we, we have a partnership with my venture fund and um, it's great. There's like all sorts of benefits that are extended to startups. And these are all ad tech startups that, you know, have, I think, pretty straightforward needs and use cases out of AWS. Like what's the program for publishers and to the extent that you you work with them, like is there also a, a, a marketing team as well? Yeah, yeah. So for publishers, it's interesting. So I am in the advertising and marketing technology team. So it's an, an industry team that focuses on ad tech, right? But we also have a media and entertainment team as well. And so our media and entertainment team focuses on the needs of publishers, but they focus on it more holistically, right? So they think you know, publishers have a lot of different needs that need to be met by AWS, right? So they have uh, subscriptions, they have audience development, they have content, and they have, you know, all of the things that that match with that. You know, I definitely help and focus uh, with that team on the ad tech side of it, because while my customers are, you know, ad tech ISVs and publishers and marketers, you know, I, I'm I'm really focused on kind of right now serving the needs of ad tech ISVs and then in turn keeping an eye on 
publishers are are being taken care of at the same time too, and they have all of their needs met in that. So how far up the stack do you go when you think about what you could offer to a customer set like a publisher? You go, obviously, the core AWS offering is storage and compute, all these very low-level offerings. You could go all the way up to offering your own ad server or offering yeah. your own clean room. So, so where, where do you stop uh, in, yeah. in that stack progression? A few years ago, you know, we were just considered building blocks, right? We were EC2 instances and, and we were storage. And really, it was a bunch of services that, that had no industry-specific guidance or resources that were around it. You know, what, we're, what we've realized throughout time is that there is a need for solutions and services that are industry-specific and people like me that understand the industry and can help guide along the development of those solutions and services, too. The way that we think about drawing that line is really asking our customers and putting in our in our customers' hands to say, where is that line, right? So we ask our customers over and over again, what's commodity technology? What is not a differentiator for your business? What do you absolutely hate building, right? What do you just like don't want to do anymore? And you just want someone to manage it for you. And you look at your competitive set and you know they built the exact same thing, but you couldn't care less if you know, you're using the same thing, right? And, and then if a large swath of them, so if we're having those conversations and a large swath of them identify the same thing, we're like, okay, that's commodity technology. It's something that, you know, they don't really care about and we'll build that, right? But we're not in the business of like our customers telling us something and then us being like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll just build that, right? There's too much going on in the industry to do that kind of stuff. And just like infrastructure really at the beginning was the thing that, you know, was recognized as being commodity technology. As our customers give us the indication that other things are commodity technology, you know, we, we consider making investments in that. And do you think of publishers as product companies? I think mm. of them as journalism companies, yeah. media companies that kind of are have engineering and product groups. But are you seeing any shift in the way they think of themselves? I am seeing a little bit of a shift. There is a slight shift. And I think there's a couple different reasons why that slight shift occurs. I think publishers have been historically frustrated in not having transparency and not feeling like they had control, right? And so I think we see in small ways publishers investing in things that do require engineering resources. I think you know, Prebid is a perfect example of that, right? So it's, you know, it's open source code, it's been developed by a community, but it's something that publishers could deploy themselves, right? They can make some investment in that, right? And they can have control over the analytics output of it. They can have control over the control and transparency in the auction mechanisms of it. So I think that's like that's like a small piece of it. But then you're also seeing some publishers who are largely just like really going for it, right? Especially in the CTV space, right? So in CTV, there's folks who are building full-on ad servers. You know, we have customers who are building, building full-on ad servers. We have, we have inventory management platforms that are being built by broadcasters or CTV platforms. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, they saw in CTV what happened to the display market and the commoditization of content in the display market. And they're 
nervous about ceding any sort of control over that data, over that decisioning mechanism. You know, they're, they're worried about that at CTV, right? And so I think that that's part, that lesson that's being learned from display and from really from websites is being applied into the way that broadcasters and CTV platforms think about their monetization. And that's good for AWS because yeah. building their own ad server is <laughs> Google or whatever. Yeah. That's a good lead into to the question I really want to ask you about, which is uh, about two weeks ago, you announced or you released an open source bidder. Um, so um, this is a topic, sorry, close to my heart. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I would call it a bidder or a bidder framework or um, yeah. you know, bidder code. Um, so tell us about it. What What's the impetus? Who do you think is going to use it? What's it good for? So one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we were doing on our team, we, we issued these things called solution guidance. And solution guidance is essentially just, it's an instruction manual, right? It's an instruction manual for how to do these things on AWS because we found that ad tech is different than <laughs> a lot of different industries. And uh, folks don't always use our services the same way in ad tech as they use them uh, in other industries. So we offered the, the solution guidance and we really wanted to democratize the underlying pieces of ad tech, right? And so for us, you know, a simple, building a simple bidder is something that helps, right? So it, it can be for customers who are, who want to make the investment, right? Who have the engineering resource, who want to make the investment in building their own bidder. Um, maybe they're very sensitive about their data. Maybe it's a starting point for in-housing. You know, I think there was some comments on Twitter where they were like, oh, should we short, you know, some DSP stock? And I'm like, okay, relax, right? We're like, really, actually, relax. <laughs> because when you think about it, you know, those companies have, like, at some point, like 15 years of experience of understanding, you know, demand and supply and how those things meet. That is something that we're not issuing a solution guidance for, right? They have UIs, they have machine learning algorithms, they have all kinds of things that are built in that, you know, this like little tiny framework that does not have. But, you know, it's also been used, like some of our customers have come back to us that have developed DSPs and and they're like, oh, you know, this kind of gave us some ideas, right? Yeah. Maybe we could, yeah, maybe we could shift, shift up some things. It can be anything to, <laughs> to anyone. I think we just wanted to put a perspective out there for our customer base to say, if you want to build this on AWS, this is how you do it. And, you know, I think uh, for anybody that's listening, we have a list of things that we're looking at uh, for solution guidance. We're always interested, like like I'm telling you, the one thing I learned, I've been at Amazon for a year. The one thing I learned is like, if your customers don't want it, they won't let you build it. <laughs> they won't let you do it. Like don't spend time on it. So if you're a customer and you would like or even if you're not a customer and you'd like to tell me or tweet at me or LinkedIn me about something specifically that you're like, yeah, I'd really like to see a solution guidance on it, you know, just let me know. And I, I would be happy to bring it to our solutions architects uh, who, who can help with, with that. Yeah. So, so I just want to build on what you said about it being a, a source of ideas because yeah. there's sort of a long history of open bidding projects. AppNexus uh, had a Java-based bidder that they open sourced that no one ever used. Google had a thing called open bidding, which um, was, uh, you know, a, a a reference for many people and no one ever really used it. There's a company called RTB Kit 
Yeah, this is. Yeah, it wasn't the company. The company was called um, Data Day Trump. What was the company called? I can't remember. But um, they they had an open source RTB kit, which was very influential for people who wanted to build their own bidder, even though, once again, very few people actually use the open source version. Uh, yeah. But uh, but enormous. And they I think they're they coined the, the word augmenter, which is now being used pretty widely. And basically, people would download the code and build their own bidder and, and use little pieces of it if they had to. So I think that that's that's very likely what what your initiative will end up being used for. Yeah, and that's cool. Like that, <laughs> that's cool. We just we just want to, you know, this isn't some like something that we we think is going to like change the industry, right? But it's something that like we want to really show right now that we're like we're part of it and we're going to contribute and that we're you know, we're here to have industry expertise at AWS and right. you can come to us for that, which I think historically, you know, is a, is a newer initiative, right? And it's a newer, uh, our team, the advertising and marketing technology team was just launched this past reInvent in November. I think we have 40 people on our team now. You know, we've grown really significantly over the past year or two years. And so, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think for us, we want to continue to make things that are useful, make things that the industry helps them to think and helps them to look at the way that they're doing things and make it better. So that's all. How many people did it take to write this? How long did it take? So Akil, who is one of the solutions architects on my team, uh, he wrote it. I don't know actually how long it took. I will have to ask him and, and give a, I will, I will let you know. I'll tweet it. After we finish this, I'll, I'll tweet it back at you. Awesome. Show note, RTB kit was uh, from Datacratic, which uh, the, ass the assets of which Beeswax acquired five years ago. Uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty humorous here. I remember the name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I didn't acquire Datacratic. I only acquired RTB kit. But, yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, Stephanie, so maybe drill down just one level. What's like a use case uh, for the open source bidder that you personally are excited about, would love to see people go go wild with? I really actually do love the use case of DSPs being able to take a look at it and being able to to think, could I be doing this more efficiently? So I, I really like it as as a starting point to just review what folks are already doing and say, why don't I ship this? Or why don't I try this? Or why don't I I like that as a use case. I, I think the other use case that I like is folks that are like very, very sensitive about their data, right? And making sure that their first party data, you know, that's a, a use case that I think is a nice use case as well. Got it. Uh, makes perfect sense. Uh, One use case that came to mind to me is that we get asked for a lot of beeswax um, was publishers bidding into their own header. Oh, yeah. That's huge. Yes. <laughs> well, oh, listen, I, I we had, um, when I was at, news, we bid into our own because we had different ad stacks at all of our different business units. And so we had, you know, an AppNexus account that bid into everybody's header bidding for cross business unit. I love that too. It's a perfect use case. Um, Maybe uh, explain why someone does that. Well, you would do that because you're trying to essentially bid into a lot of multiple different ad servers, right? And you don't want to reserve any inventory you want it to be non-guaranteed that is part of the you know part of the reason why we did it at news was everybody had different ad servers and then we just needed to get access to that i, th I man 
I had almost forgotten that was a couple of years ago that I, <laughs> that I set that up. Yeah, it's a cool use case. Yeah. So speaking of DSPs, one recurring topic, uh, I think a weekly topic that we've got here on the pod is uh, the blurring of the lines or the smashing together or the world of DSPs and SSPs. Uh, last week, we saw the uh, the launch of ClearLine, which uh, was, you know, seemingly sort of, you know, a, a, a direct response to, to open path, just given where, you know, your, your background, where you sit in the, in the ecosystem, what's, yeah. what's like your general thought about this, this whole DSP, SSP blurring? Yeah, this is actually one of the biggest things that moving from the publisher side to moving to AWS has made me think a lot more about, right? Because the inefficiency of the supply chain is actually kind of wild, right? So it's like when you look at the fact that there's DSPs, which are bidding into SSPs, which are bidding into header bidding, which is bidding into an ad server, like we've got this like crazy four level auction situation that's happening that like doesn't make any sense. And like the thing I didn't think about when I was on the publisher side was how much like resource that actually uses from a like from a compute perspective in like a completely unnecessary, <laughs> a completely like crazy way. Because I think in my head I was like, okay, well, if you if you push as much demand into supply, then it doesn't, then you get the highest amount of yield. But then I realized like there's actually a lot more high level things that publishers like the, not the pu that just publishers individually can do, but publishers like as a whole and as an industry we could do that help to increase yield for publishers, right? So if you if you give publishers transparency and control over all of their pricing data, they can appropriately floor, they can, you know, put machine learning out. Like there's like lots of different things that they can do to properly manage their yield that are not just like kind of shoving another adapter to artificially like floor this like super big. And so for me, it just kind of, when I really think about these, like they just kind of make sense, right? When you think about this massive auction and all the inefficiencies, like the fact that those lines are blurring between DSPs and SSPs, it just kind of makes sense because folks are starting to move in different directions. I mean, I think the one thing that bothers me about folks, you know, getting all up in arms about like open path is the idea that like SSPs are moving up the stack too. Like there's lots of managed service versions of pre-bid, right? Or header bidding that all exist kind of further up the stack too. So then SSPs are playing there and what the opportunity is. And if we were, if we as an industry were able to get interoperability into one auction framework, like a fair, transparent auction framework, if we were to all be able to get interoperability into that, the ad serving market actually opens up, right? And that's another place in which SSPs could play, right? Yeah. And we wouldn't have to always sit here and worry so much about stepping on each other's toes because when you really think about it, the ad server makes the ultimate decision and everybody else is relegated to having to listen to the ad server anyway. Yeah, the ad server market has been stagnated because yeah. of the hard bundle of DFP and AdX. So if you don't use DFP, you don't get the AdX demand, and that's too big a carrot to leave behind. Yeah. So you have to stick with it. I think the 
the real opportunity here. And I think what we should all be looking towards is how do SSPs start to, you know, they've, they've built all kinds of interesting, you know, programmatic guaranteed platforms, right? And, you know, I've always been very frustrated because when I was a publisher, it was like, why would I use a programmatic guaranteed platform from someone outside of my ad server? It's totally inefficient. They can't read my guarantees, like all that kind of stuff. But that is actually a, you know, if you were to give data back into the hands of the entity that really deserves it, which is the publisher, they would be able to do more, do more interesting things with with their data. And and we could actually start to see a more competitive landscape in terms of ad surveying. So I think what we need to do is we need to stop thinking about this tiny box that everybody is in and we need to start looking up. Everybody needs to start looking up because those auctions are going to collapse, right? That's all going to collapse in and of itself because of the inefficiencies of it. And I think that's okay as long as we can empower SSPs to what, honestly, I believe they've they always should have been, which is ad servers. Well, they always wanted to be sort of revenue machines. Yeah. And uh, they've been cut. Every time they've tried to innovate, they end up hitting a roadblock because of Google or somebody else. Yeah. Oh, well, on, on that note, let's take a quick break and have some more advertiser content. I know everyone's very excited about that. Uh, and we'll come back and talk about the news of the week. This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember Where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Okay, so let's talk about what happened this week. A lot of, a lot of news, there's earnings season, but let's start on the topic we were just talking about, SSPs and DSPs. There's always some news here. So um, Index Exchange published what they're calling a loyalty pledge to DSPs. Uh, or uh, was it to DSPs or to publishers? It was to DSPs. It was to DSPs, yeah. Is this just a... A gimmick, a little uh, quick press gimmick. Uh, Eric, what do you think? No, I don't think it's a it's a quick press gimmick per se. Um, I think that you know they've got their core value right, which is they they view Index as being a very publisher centric company. I think they you know realize that they can be in an interesting position vis a vis some of the moves that. Uh, their competitors have made with launching, you know, competitive products to DSPs or acquiring DSPs. I think they can wisely position themselves as a as a partner and not necessarily a competitor. So yeah, I think it's just reminding the market of where they where they sit and uh, making a little bit of noise about it. That that was my take. You know, I I think I think kind of to tie to my point before the advertiser break, it it was it's sort of like every single SSP is trying to find their spot and trying to make their position in the ecosystem known. But I, I think a lot of it is is small potatoes when I think we can really work together to make sure that SSPs have a bigger future than what we, we currently look, look at today. Or they'd like to. Yeah. So just in case you thought clean rooms were dead, um, they're not. Um, Optal is a company based in Canada uh, who actually has a bunch of former Datacratic people, while we're talking about Datacratic, 
they raised $20 million, which is pretty great um, for the clean room technology. I think people don't call it clean room anymore. They're calling it a, anything besides clean room, but it doesn't yeah. It's very ad tech of us, right? To just like make up different names for the exact same thing. And isn't there an acronym like CRP for clean room platform, which oh, I think is just trying, trying a little too hard. Uh, that's very ad tech as well. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, are clean rooms alive again? Or were they never dead or or what? I work at AWS. We launched <laughs> AWS clean rooms. I think they're very much alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think the the question that we've been debating on on this pod multiple times is, you know, are clean rooms a feature that larger platforms such as Amazon and AWS, you know, the other other large mm-hmm. companies, is a feature that they need to offer, you know, to have a, a full stack offering, or is it Something that, you know, there can be just an independent, uh, you know, competitive set of clean room companies that can offer custom solutions. And, you know, just looking at Optimal and, and reading through the, the the article on Ad Exchanger, it you know, feels like the the bet with Optimal is, you know, a publisher-centric clean room, you know, it's independent outside of the, you know, large, large cloud providers is what they're going for here. The scuttlebutt about clean rooms is that um, it's a solution that I think a lot of people in our ecosystem really needed to have exist. It has a lot of good use cases, but maybe a little slow to revenue and customer adoption. So that's kind of been some of the reasons there's been some layoffs and some headlines about the sector. The ultimate need for privacy enabling technologies is still very strong. um, And that's one of them. You know, I I think the one thing that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, especially in in these types of areas is the idea that you still need in ad tech, there's this, there's the underlying technology, right? The underlying clean room technology, but you also still need UIs and reporting and the things that translate the underlying technology into something that a, a business user can use, right? I think, yes, a lot of consumer, like consumer data and publisher data and marketers data all sits on the cloud platforms. But I think there is also an opportunity to make sure that we're delivering out different ways to help to visualize those things. Like, you know, almost like like applications on top of the underlying infrastructure. That's how I've been how I've been viewing things. I, I interviewed for architecture almost all the Cleaver vendors and they were uh, to a great extent they're trying to differentiate themselves based on their uh, analytics UIs was a big yeah. Of many of the vendors, you have to give people answers, not just like tech. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, if you look, you know, I, I think back to the question that you asked me before, which is like, do publishers really invest in technology? Like, yeah, they invest in technology, but they also can't invest in like every technology, right? <laughs> so, so they have to decide, okay, where am I going to buy a third party's UIs, like, right, where am I going to actually like deeply invest? And then where am I going to use a third party for it? And I think that this is, this is an area for that. Also, clean rooms are aligned with two of the biggest trends in ad tech, which are CTV, where the data is often owned by the publisher, yep. and uh, retail media, where you have the same dynamic with a big retailer and lots and lots of small marketers who want access to the data. Those are big tailwinds. So this week was earnings week. So Google, Microsoft, Facebook all provide earnings. It was interesting. I, I think the news that most struck me and then had the most sort of Twitter debate um, is Google, 
Um, so Google uh, reported YouTube down 3% and the network business down around 8% roughly. Against, now, admittedly, these are against hard comparisons because they had a very good quarter a year ago. But I, I'd like to focus more on the network business. The network business is, um, is Google Display Network, Google AdSense, and um, the part of AdWords that's not search, and the, the SaaS products that used to be known as DoubleClick. So what's the sense here? Is this a permanent decline? Um, has this topped out forever, or is this a blip? I think there's a, a couple of things here. Number one, the comps were, you know, just perhaps sort of, sort of like generational, right? So it, it's pretty unfair to look at this year with everything going on versus versus last year. I think that's thing one. Thing two, now that, you know, we're seeing earnings from a number of companies, um, there's an ad spend slowdown. It's a fact, right? So you've got that as a as a significant headwind. And then you've got just the increased competition for a you know finite and slow growing set of ad dollars um, and it's not just like like for like competition vis-a-vis -vis, you know Google and its direct competitors it's you know budget going to TikTok budget going to retail media going to DTV which are growing you know uh, double digits in the face of it and a mature display market so I think you know it's some of the the macro dynamics there the one thing that i thought was was interesting was you know with the network being down like 8% you know like pmax is this thing that's looming that you know i thought would be a fast growth driver for the business so a is is pmax you know not having the impact um b is it having an impact but other areas of the business are down that much that it sort of cancels everything out or c not none of the above yeah, those are good. There's a lot to unpack here because it is a combination. It, the line network is a combination of so many things. I guess stepping back, the big question I have is, have we peaked in open web advertising? So every every website, every app, et cetera, that's not part of a wall garden, you add it all up, Google's network business is very proportional to it, and it seems flat to down. And I just wonder if the best days are over for open web advertising. For the open web, I do agree. I, you know, now I think there is saturation. I think what is going to happen now with the open web, there will obviously be disruption, you know, when and if the cookie finally goes away, right? But I do feel like the open web is at the swings of supply and demand right now, which is like, you know, we saw during the pandemic, the open web as a whole, had a lot more supply than it, it had before. And that was just because people were like wildly consuming content, right, and via, via the open web. I think maybe maybe the growth of the web has slowed, like the open web has slowed. I think the question now is, are we going to be paying more attention to supply and demand aspects that are attached to it? Right, right. You, you, what you might expect to happen uh, is that as the organic growth slows or declines on open web and mm -hmm. cookies go away, so it becomes harder to find the people you want to find, that prices might increase, which is sort of what the thing that's been bullying TV for 10 years. They keep increasing the prices on linear. As a result, the total size of the market doesn't decline while viewership declines. Open web might have an opportunity for more pricing power um, over time. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. But, you know, it, go it goes back to um, the the growth itself will slow or even go down. So, you know, somewhat like the, the Google results that we're talking about now, like what, what will the overall 
impact be? On the other side of it, there's so much growth in, in other places, right? So, um, you know, there's going to be CTV and retail media and, you know, perhaps, you know, some software that drives some of the uh, yield increases that we're talking about. So I think you're just going to see the opportunity move to different places. And then just overall, if we go, you know, sort of look at this on a, on a macro perspective, I mean, there's 3 billion people using meta properties, right? So just, you know, we're reaching a saturation point with a lot of this stuff just because digital has eaten the world, so to speak. Um, so at some point, you just run out of people to, you know, put more ads in front of Okay, last topic, uh, which is always a fun one. We had Ratko on two weeks ago where we talked about this idea that contextual vendors should be paying for access to publisher data. And I've always thought this is sort of an absurd idea because there's robots.txt, et cetera, and actually it makes them more money if their data is indexed. And yet, this week, Digiday reported that The Guardian got someone to agree to pay them which is just amazing. Like, I want to meet the BD guy who did this, or girl. So the Guardian newspaper got a contextual vendor by the name of Luma. I don't really know Luma very well, um, to pay them to scrape the site and build a contextual product. Um, I'm just amazed by this. Stephanie, is this the future, or is, is no one I have so many feelings on this. So I have, like, <laughs> feelings. I have, like, the most feelings. So I'm going to tell you about my feelings, because... I don't know what the answer is, but I think about it a lot and it stresses me out. <laughs> what I think, because like if we actually like start to really like think about this at like very high level. So, yes, you get compensated if somebody is capturing your contextual signal. This would matter less if like cookies were actually gone and probabilistic IDs were actually gone, right? Because then there wouldn't be like a ton of audience profiling, which still happens and still occurs. So if all of that was gone, maybe I would feel like less passionate about this. But I'm like really kind of stressed out about like the copyright aspects of like journalism and news organizations and folks who write like unique content and the idea that like they're not really actually compensated. And if any of that data or any of that functionality or any of that advertising is ever used elsewhere across the internet or elsewhere, not even the internet, if it's being used in AI, if it's being used in like anything, if there's like no compensation model for publishers to create this content, then publishers can't create the content anymore. And then if publishers don't create the content anymore, like what is actually feeding algorithms anymore? So I, I know I totally just like mashed my stresses about AI into this contextual conversation. But I think it's like a bigger conversation about like publishers and like the value of content, like high value content versus like lower value content, like versus like what is like good for society, all that kind of stuff like that. I just like this entire thing when I think about it, because I'm, I'm seeing what we've created on a micro level with contextual advertising. That's like people like they don't know the content, right? And they're they're applying the same type of technology to a Wall Street Journal that they're applying to, you know, Joe Schmo's blog. You know, it, it's like it's it's all a little bit like wide swath. And then I think all of that, like the stress of like that actually feeds into like the whole generative AI conversation too, which is like, you know, if we don't properly figure out a way to compensate high value content, then are we going to like put ourselves in a position where we we actually create like really 
really dumb people. <laughs> so it sounds it sounds like you're kind of on the side of publishers to get paid. Yeah. I mean, I'm always on, have you met me? I'm always on the yeah, side yeah. of publishers. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Don't you think at the end of the day, this is just, it's like, this seems like a pricing scheme to, to me um, mm-hmm. that, you know, as, as long as the publisher is getting, you know, the, the best yield in the market for, you know, their, their contextual data, um, does it really matter if they're getting paid directly for it or they're getting, you know, some sort of like uh, revenue share or, you know, total payment from, you know, an ad tech vendor that makes it part of the offering such that they're just like maxing out whatever the value of the, of the data is. So it's like, th- does it even matter? But in an ideal world where the technology actually does what it's supposed to do, like all of what you said totally makes sense, right? But like, we don't live in an ideal world. So I'll give you an example. When I worked at News, one of the problems with a lot of these contextual is like they would pick up the wrong words from scanning. This like kind of ties into brand safety, but it would be like they would scan a Wall Street Journal article. The Wall Street Journal article would have the term kill in it, right, which is a fi- like a financial term that I don't know a ton about finance, but I remember like someone being like, yeah, this is a financial term. It's not being used as like somebody is being killed, right? And it was picked up in the wrong context, right? And because it was picked up in the wrong context, because like the models for these like contextual scrapers are not considering the nuances of each journalistic, you know, voice and of the types of words that they're using and how they're using them, right? It's not like deep enough. They don't know enough. And so what would happen is like all of these articles would get flagged as being like not brand safe when they were totally brand safe and they were totally fine. And so from my perspective, there's just the practice and then there's and publishers are like like they're really kind of tired of their context being shared. Right. It has totally like been shared everywhere, all over the place, all the time. And I think it's they're finally starting to say context matters and we should like take back control of that. Well, the good news is that AI will solve all these problems. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's a great, great end point for us. Um, this has been a great episode. Eric, thanks as always. Stephanie, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app. 